Well, good morning. My name is Roger. I'm a member of the church here. Uh, I want to begin just by asking you a question. Does anybody ever rub you up the wrong way? You know, you're, you're with them in a room, and they're talking, and you can feel the, you know, the hairs on your arm begin to bristle, and the, the hairs on the back of your neck. And the more they go on, the more you just want to get out of their presence. You don't want to be in the same space with them. Or maybe it's certain politicians who have this uh, effect on you. You're watching them on the telly, and they're just going at it again and again and again. And you get so annoyed and angry because they're rubbing you up the wrong way. Or it's a celebrity, or it's somebody else in the public eye. Well, I have a confession to make this morning. And this is my confession. When uh, I was asked if I could do a, a Sunday in August, I knew we won't be on holiday this week. I said, yeah, fine, that's no problem. And then I learned I was going to be doing a, a talk on David, the great king. And my heart fell. Because I've always had reservations about David. You know, he is so bigged up. You know, he is this larger-than-life character. Everybody knows the David and Goliath story. Yeah, the quintessential little guy takes on the big guy. The little guy comes out as the hero. What's not to like about that? But he was also a great musician, very adept on the 10 and 22 stringed lyre. And because he was a musician of some repute, he was also a songwriter, and almost half of the songs in the biblical book of Psalms, actually 73 out of the 150, are his. He has military exploits to his name. In fact, uh, populist propaganda got behind David. Uh, David was a military leader. The king was Saul. And the song went, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And then there's Jerusalem. You ever been to Jerusalem? You know, it's all over all of the publicity. It is the city of David. And come Christmas time, we all sing the carols about the baby that was born in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. He doesn't have one city, he has two cities. Now, just to digress for a while, we, we lived for three years in one of the great cities of our country. We lived in Liverpool. And in Liverpool, one of the most significant high schools is King David High School, serving the Jewish community. And even Jesus, if you read the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, is the son of David. Do you get a sense that he's been bigged up here? But my problems are about the other side of David. I don't know how deeply you dive into his story. But I want to just uh, give you a flavor of some of my reservations about this character. 
First, the Goliath thing. You know, he was around 15 years old. And he waltzes up to a military encampment and says, I'll take my sling and kill the giant. How precocious is that? And later on in the story, uh, King Saul has uh, turned against him. So David is looking to escape from Saul's clutches. Uh, he washes up at a, a town called Nob, gets the priest to help him, but isn't straight with the priest about what's going on. In fact, he doesn't tell the truth at all. He lies. The consequence of those lies is that priest and 84 other priests and all the men and women and children and livestock in that town were massacred because he wasn't straight and didn't tell the truth. And having fought the Philistines and killed Goliath, he flip-flops. So when Saul's after him, he seeks sanctuary with the Philistines. I guess on the premise that my enemy's enemy is my friend. But when he gets into trouble there, he feigns mental illness to get out of it. And on the run from the authorities, he begins to gather together a, a, a ragtag and bobtail private army who manage to sustain themselves by something that is no less than a protection racket. Extortion with menaces, which is where we were last week with the story of Abigail and Tamsin speaking. He practiced polygamy. He had more than one wife even though God had said this was not to be so. And then into his reign as king, when he should have been off fighting, but wasn't, but was in his palace, from his palace roof, he spies a beautiful woman taking a bath. This is the David and Bathsheba story, if you know it. And what he does is he sends some of his entourage to her house to bring her back to him so that he can have his wicked way with her. Now, historically, that's been called adultery. I don't know that we would call it adultery in the days of the Me Too movement. This is an abuse of power. And it gets worse because he then has her husband, Uriah, killed by what is no less than state-sanctioned assassination. And his own family is dysfunctional. His son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. David does nothing. Her brother, Absalom, stews on it. David does nothing. Absalom murders Amnon. David does nothing. Absalom leads a rebellion against David. In what universe can David be a hero and a role model, a great king? Yeah, maybe you begin to see why I don't particularly warm to this biblical icon. I have a friend who would say, it's all rather murky. Certainly complicated, 
He's certainly a flawed man. And yet, David did rule for 40 years as king. And his kingship is remembered as a, a golden age of peace and prosperity. Uh, the territory he ruled doubled in size during his reign. He was successful militarily. He was an effective diplomat. And it all begs the question, it's a really important question, what is it that makes for a great leader? What makes you good at exercising power? Exercising influence? It's interesting, I was just thinking back over the last decades. And you know what? All of our prime ministers are seen as flawed individuals. You raise any name and you could begin to say what your reservations are uh, about Theresa May, about uh, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, Margaret Thatcher. Even some of the greatest leaders, Churchill, Kennedy, yeah, we know they have feet of clay. And to personalize it, yeah, we are, I guess, never going to be prime minister or president or king. But when we exercise power and influence in our lives, you know, what is it that enables us to do that well? For David, I have to say, it's about the manner of his rule. And it stands out against the backcloth of history. I, I want to take you to a transition point. King Saul has died, and David is about to become king. And all the tribes of Israel have gathered to David at Hebron, which is about 19 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And... Uh, uh, the leaders say to David, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaign. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. And when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron, before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. thing to note here is that this isn't like some kind of royal family succession. He's not the eldest in line. This is not an autocratic, authoritarian, or despotic rule. Actually, it's quite different if we just kind of review the story. The elders say to David, we are your own flesh and blood. You're not someone who has special rank. You're not a superhero. You are one of us. We are flesh and blood. And yet, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. Your experience fits you for the role of being our king. And the Lord said... And this is important. The, the, the question that's really significant for them is what does God want? This is not the divine right of kings, 
but the divine choice of a king. Who does God want to be in this role? And what did God say? God said, you will shepherd my people. Uh, David understood shepherdship because he had been a shepherd. And God says to David, this is the nature of your kingship. You are to be a shepherd king. Now, this isn't unusual in the ancient Near East. Uh, but this is, the king made a covenant with the elders of the 12 tribes of Israel. A legal agreement. And in this legal agreement, there were rights and responsibilities. There was accountability. This is a different kind of kingship. And all of this was done before the Lord. Because while David was to be king, there was a higher authority to which he and the nation were answerable. A higher authority that set the standard. Now, David knew God as his own shepherd. In one of his famous songs, he writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Shepherdship is about provision, it's about well-being, it's about flourishing, it's about protecting those in your charge. David understood what shepherdship was about, and God says, this is the kind of king that you are to be. David has power, he has influence, but it's for this purpose, to care for those who are his responsibility not to serve his own ego, not to increase his own wealth, not to advantage his own family or friends or circle. Now, simply put, this is what good leadership is about. About the well-being and flourishing and protection and provision of those you lead. Three things that I've observed about David having revisited his story these last weeks. And the first is this. He's learnt that it isn't about him. You know, shepherding means that you put your life online because of your family's livelihood. When you're taking care of the sheep, it's about the sheep. It's not about you. He was also the youngest of eight brothers. I don't know whether you come from a large family, but if you are the youngest sibling, you know that that is a rare position to hold. You are the least significant, you are the youngest, and you remain the youngest throughout the whole of your life, no matter how old you become. So in David's family, when the famous prophet Samuel comes to visit and wants to meet everyone, who's the one person who isn't invited back in from the fields where he's looking after the sheep? It's David. He's the eighth child. 
And then when ultimately he is called back in and the prophet Samuel anoints him prophetically about this role of kingship that will come to him, he knows that it's not about him, it's the fact that he has been anointed under God's direction. David had the self-awareness to understand that there was a bigger context. The bottom line was that he knew that it was not about him. Though sometimes he lost sight of that. Fear does weird things with your head and causes you to do things that are out of character. And it was fear for his life that led him not to be straight with the priest at Nob and led to that uh, massacre. And if power corrupts, that corrupting influence grabbed hold of his life too. Particularly when uh, he saw Bathsheba and thought, I want that. I can have that. And sent his cronies out to get her. And yet these, these songs that he writes are a really insightful window into his soul. And you get a, a glimpse from time to time of how he understands that the world doesn't revolve around him, uh, particularly when he contemplates the natural world. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. This wonder at the sky is nothing like staring up at the stars and reflecting on how small you are. Now, I don't think that King David had a post-Einstein understanding of space-time. But he did understand what was beyond his understanding, what was beyond his control. And when you've seriously understood that perspective, when you've taken it into yourself, and it's become an integral part of who you are, even though you lose sight of it for a moment... You only have to look to be reminded and for the reset button to be pressed. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. David understood his place in the world. He understood that the world didn't revolve around him, even as king. Shepherds serve sheep, kings serve the people, not to be served, but to serve. Not the center of the universe. The heart of life is what we contribute, not what we receive. It's the part we play rather than what we can get out of it. It's having the opportunity to serve rather than to be the one who is served. Second, when David does realize that he's lost sight of this, he quickly acknowledges his fault. Following Saul's massacre of the priests and the community at Nob, one of the community uh, escapes and looks to get news to David to let him know 
uh, what's happened. They're the guys called Abiathar. And when David is confronted with the news and he hears and realizes the implication of his lies and his deception, his response is simple. I'm responsible. That wasn't Abiathar's intent. This was David's honesty. He had been too concerned with his own plight to think through the deadly implications for those who were helping him. He had been serving his own interests at the expense of others, however legitimate his fears were. Or again, in response to being bravely confronted about the Bathsheba incident and the death of Uriah by the prophet Nathan, where he had used his power as king to satisfy himself and to cover it up, Nathan climaxes the confrontation with, you are the man. Later, David reflects on this experience and as a direct result writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. Or again, having reflected on the intensity of his own moral failure, he writes, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He gets something of the, the feeling of the depth of David's anguish at the darkness that was revealed that was inside of him and how he wanted rid of it. You know, it would be great if David were a perfect example of what being a great king, a great leader, a great influencer looks like. But he's not. Like the rest of us, he's human. And he makes mistakes. And sometimes he seems to learn from his experience only to go and then mess up all over again. And of course, given his position and the power that he has, the mistakes that he makes are graver. And the implications on the surface are much more serious. And yet there is something about David even when he makes a catastrophic mistake that brings him back on course, that presses that reset button in the midst of the error. It's probably why that prophet Samuel calls David, identifies David as a man after God's own heart. And that's the painful realization that David constantly has to struggle with, the pit 
that he descends into when he indulges himself, when he serves his own interests, his own lusts, and sacrifices others along the way. But then third, he tries to learn from his experience. Just as when he was a shepherd and he learned how to use the sling and he used applied knowledge to fell Goliath, David draws on the other things that happened to him to make him a better king. He learned to be a leader and a strategist with that ragtag and bobtail private army. As a fugitive on the run, he travels outside of Israel. He gets to know the wider world. And some scholars say this is the root of his strengths in diplomacy and trade because he understands life outside. And it's more than that, too, in his personal life. His relationship with God is central. He wants to learn from his mistakes, to live at one with God, to be the best David that he can be, the best king that he can be. He wants to be faithful to his vocation given him by God to shepherd my people Israel to serve them rather than be served by them, to use his power and influence for the benefit of all rather than just the benefit of himself. And in many ways, the, the Psalms, these songs that he wrote, are like a, a personal journey, a, a, a diary of uh, uh, journal conversations that he has with God. And you get something of the deep core of who he is, when he says, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. And this sentiment comes again and again and again. He wants to align his life. He wants to align his morality. He wants to align his understanding. He wants to align his kingship with the holy, righteous God. And yet the truth is, like us, his experience ebbs and flows. Just because he's living according to his best intentions now doesn't fireproof him from in the future lapsing and making a mistake all over again, either consciously or unconsciously. And revisiting his story over these last weeks, I've had a, a fresh appreciation of how he tries even though with his family he seems to have learned the wrong lesson and his family is an open wound for all of his life. You know, David is not a perfect man. He's not a perfect father. He's not a perfect king. And we are not perfect either. And sometimes we may not read things right. Sometimes we may make mistakes because we've chosen to or it's just happened. Sometimes there are problems that don't go away, and that's life. But here's the thing. David's vocation is to be the king of the covenant, the shepherd king who lives to serve rather than be served, human and fallible like the rest of us, though with higher stakes, yet identified by Samuel as a man after God's own heart, the qualities that bring him back on track when he does mess up, 
are that he knows it's not all about him. And that when he realizes he's lost sight of the main thing, he quickly acknowledges his fault. And then he seeks to learn from his experience. But there's 3,000 years between then and now. There is a cultural gulf between a Middle Eastern king from the Iron Age and 21st century residents of the sophisticated suburb of Finchampstead. But even so, across the centuries, the dynamics of how we use power and influence remain the same. It's why there are so many echoes of our experience in David's story. Do we use the power and influence that we have to serve ourselves or to serve others? Yeah, it puts me in mind of a, a saying of Jesus. Uh, he's talking to his closest friends. He says, you know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve. Friends, we may not be a king. We might even not even consider ourselves to be particularly important or powerful. But we all have situations in which we have power and influence. Whether that's at home as a parent or a family member, at work or at school, wherever we happen to find ourselves most days and why we're there, how we spend our downtime, our recreation with the clubs and organizations and societies that we belong to, the hobbies that we fulfill, as a neighbor, as a shopper, as an acquaintance, as a colleague, as a friend, as a client. Actually, whether great or small, there are probably no situations in which we are completely powerless and without influence. Now, where will we be in this coming week? And where will we have power? and influence to exercise. Uh, the question is, do we use what influence and power we have to serve others or to serve ourselves? Are we the kind of people who rub others up the wrong way because of our attitudes and the way we act? Or do we leave the circumstances, the situations, the people we meet better for having been in their company? Like us, David was far from perfect. His life ebbed and flowed. Some days he lived what he aspired to. Other times he was nowhere near. Yet even in his grossest and most serious mistakes, it doesn't spell the end. There's always a way back. He's not written off. He doesn't give up on trying. And that's what makes him a great king. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. Because at the core of who he was and how he lived was not to be served but to serve. 
And in that sense, Jesus really was a son of David. And for David, he knew it wasn't all about him. It's a sobering question to ask ourselves where we have been serving ourselves at the expense of the interests of others. That's something you might want to ponder on. But then, when David realizes he's lost sight of the main thing, he quickly acknowledges his fault. And the subsequent question for us is, are there things in our life that we need to confess and get right? To make that statement, I am responsible. Because it was me who messed up. And then... He looks to learn from his experience. What do we need to learn from our mistakes? That we can better live the life that we aspire to live. That we can be uh, the blessing to the people and the situations in which we find ourselves day by day. That we live this Central statement from Jesus that we see embodied in David's life. Not to be served, but to serve. And if you take away nothing else from this morning, but to link that King David, his kingship embodied this and that's what made him great. And that Jesus was a son of David. And he said that's the way to go to. Then this morning will have been worthwhile. Not to be served. But to serve. To play our part. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that... In the record that we have of King David's life, all the awkward and tough stuff wasn't papered over. That we get a true reflection of his life and the stuff that he did, particularly some of the gross stuff, the bad stuff, the failures, the horrendous errors. And yet to see from the man that he was, those things that brought him back on track, that kept him true. Thank you that he's a great example of what Jesus himself taught. That even he did not come to be served, but to serve. Father, I pray that by your spirit, that spiritual truth would sink deep into our hearts and souls and day by day, and hour by hour, and moment by moment, transform us to be better people. More aligned with Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.